Um, the reading this evening is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, which can be found on page 801 of the Church Bibles. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Thank you. Please do keep uh, Malachi chapter 1 open on page 801. Um, and uh, as Andrew said, this is the start of a summer series in the book of Malachi. We've got seven weeks um, to go through it. And we're actually tonight only covering verses 1 to 5, but I thought we'd read the whole of chapter 1 to, to get a feel for what's going on. Um, if you've never come across Malachi or don't really know uh, what's going on, where, <laughs> kind of where we are in the Bible or, or who this Malachi is, don't worry. Um, I'll try and give us a bit of an introduction tonight. Um, uh, but before we do that, let me um, pray. Um, let me pray as we begin. <clears throat> Our Father, we heard this morning how your word is precious, more precious than fine gold, and that by your word your servant is warned. And so we prayed tonight you would open our ears and our hearts to listen to you, and we pray that um, as we hear uh, truths from your word, uh, warnings and encouragements, that we would be spurred on in service of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. 
coming somewhere around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, so around 440 years before Jesus came. But the message of Malachi has ongoing, really huge resonance, I think, for the times we are living in. To get our heads around that, we need to get a feel for how God's people were feeling at the time of Malachi. See, Malachi was written at a time of deep weariness, disillusionment, and so compromise for God's people. In fact, we heard that, didn't we, in our reading? Just look down to verse 13. Um, It's great, Malachi, because you keep getting quotes from what the people are saying back to God. Here's one quote, verse 13 of chapter 1. You say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. All this sacrificing and following God's law, serving God, what a weariness it is. And what is the point of pouring out our time, energy, effort on serving God? That's how God's people were feeling at the time. Why were they feeling like that? Well, I'll fill in a bit of historical background in a moment, but just flick across to chapter 3, verse 14. I think chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 are key for getting our heads into what they were feeling, and then that will help us understand why it's relevant to us. Just look at chapter 3, verse 14, on page 802 in the Church Bibles. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Here's where the weariness is coming from. Verse 14, they think it's vain to serve God, as in pointless. What is the profit? What is the point of sacrificially serving the God of the Bible? Now, perhaps some of us in the room are young enough either in life or in the Christian life, young enough to have never come across this temptation, to to give up or grow weary, in which case for you, Malachi will be some helpful preemptive medicine. But it might well be there are a few folk here tonight, whether you're visiting us or part of the church family, who really are feeling a sense of disillusionment, a kind of disappointment in God and his purposes, and a real struggle to persevere in wholehearted service of him right now. I mean, it is the time of year, isn't it, where we're all quite weary. Um, It's been a full-on year serving God at church, at home, at work. Uh, Lots of us just physically, emotionally, need a bit of a break, a rest, um, a summer holiday. Um, Hopefully, for for lots of us, that's the the weariness of kind of a hard job well done, done, a kind of... I'm tired, but I'm glad. Actually, there's, there's nothing I would have rather have done with this last year of my life than pour myself out in wholehearted service of God and others in the various places he's put me in life. No better way to invest time, energy, money than serving our great God and his glorious gospel. But the people in Malachi's day weren't weary but satisfied. No, they were disillusioned and disappointed. They were verging on bitter towards God. They were thinking, what is the point of slaving away, serving the God of the Bible when it makes no positive difference to life? 
In fact, it's two sides, isn't it? Just look back at that chapter, th- uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's both positively, it doesn't make any difference serving God, and negatively, if you reject God, that doesn't seem to make any difference either. Verse 14, you've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What's the point of, of trying to live God's way, of being repentant and mourning when we've wronged God? doesn't seem to make any difference. We don't seem to be blessed. And then verse 15, you look across to those other people who don't bother with God, who pay zero attention to the Bible, who totally reject what he says, and, well, they seem to be getting away with it, scot-free. Verse 15 again, now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Can you see the, the weariness that has an edge of bitterness to it? Why should we take sin seriously when our neighbors are totally ignoring God and they have a better life than we do? Why am I serving God when it seems to have come to nothing? Now, if you turn back to chapter 1, the consequence of that weariness, of that kind of doubting whether there was any point of really wholeheartedly engaging with God and trusting him, the consequence was that they'd begun to become half-hearted or or compromised in their service of him. Um, So their financial giving has dropped way below what the Mosaic law taught, the the tithe required by God's law. Their uh, sacrifices for sin were quite literally lame. They were offering lame sacrifices, lame in every sense. I mean, not their best to God, but actually their worst, the kind of leftovers, the scraps, the stuff they didn't want anyway. Um, So look at verse 6. Um, a son on, <coughs> of chapter 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Well, here's the answer. By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying you wouldn't even treat your governor like this. The kind of offerings you're bringing to me, you'd be embarrassed to bring them to a school raffle. You know, the prize table, which is the things people don't really want, but they're willing to donate. What a weariness is this? Look at verse 13, where we started. They're saying, what a weariness is this? You bring what's taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. So that's what's going on in this book. God's people have become disillusioned. They're weary. They're bitter. They think there's no real point serving God. And so they've begun to dishonor God. At this point, they haven't given up entirely, They're just going half-hearted, going through the motions, but no longer with the heart, no longer giving their best. And now God sends this message through Malachi to say that actually half-hearted going through the motions is not okay. I deserve better than that, he says. And actually, if you think it makes no real difference whether you serve God or not, I need to tell you, and by the end of the book, he will tell them and us, that there is a great day coming, a day of judgment, when it will be very clear 
who stands which side of the line, when it will become very clear that it was worth serving God in the end. That's where the whole book's going. Let's dive into our first few verses um, to uh, begin to see, um, <coughs> excuse me, begin to see how God is um, helping wake up his people um, to the fact it's worth uh, trusting him and serving him. Now, some historical backgrounds. Um, you might be thinking, how, how could God's people get to this situation where they've become totally disillusioned, where they're thinking, what's the point of serving God? And the basic answer to that is that the bit of history they were living in. Because at this point of history, a bit like today, actually, it didn't look like God's people were being blessed and God's enemies were being held accountable or judged. In fact, it looked quite the opposite to that. God's people at this point were a tiny minority, really quite pathetic on the kind of global stage. They were eking out their existence as like a, a minor territory, part of the massive Persian Empire. At this point in the Bible, we're after the exile. Uh, so we're after when Israel was conquered and taken to Assyria. We're after when Judah, the remaining kind of part of God's people, were, were taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. And that was a massive blow, a crushing blow. God had warned it would happen if they rejected him, but still, it was a massive blow. But then, on the emotional roller coaster, there was great hope because Persia came along and King Cyrus decreed that they could go back to the land. The Jews could go back to Jerusalem. And it seemed like, wow, this is it. There's hope again. Our, our fortunes are picking up. Not least because by that point, God had made loads of huge promises. Think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Huge promises that there'd be a great restoration coming in the future, a land of peace and security. This amazing king from David's line would come. An even better temple than the one you had before will come. So here's the thing. They've got the Bible and the weekly sermon teaching that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, it's going to be better than ever. And then they've got what their experience is telling them and their eyes, which is a really different story. Because by this point, they're 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah got the temple being rebuilt, again with a promise that one day great blessing would come. The thing is, the temple's now finished, and it's not particularly impressive, not even as good as the old one. And their ruler is not some great Davidic king. It's a pokey local governor in the empire of Persia. And their territory is not some huge, peaceful land. It's a tiny patch, just a 20 by 30 miles, kind of <clears throat> not much bigger than Fife kind of land. They're a tiny speck on the map. While these God-denying kingdoms and empires rise around them and above them. So perhaps we can start to see why they might become disillusioned. I mean, what is the point of serving God when he doesn't seem to be blessing us, when all those great promises in the Bible and in the weekly sermons don't seem to be happening on the ground, and those who reject him seem to get away with it? That's the situation. Let's get into our first few verses um, and Malachi is a brilliant book because it, it's all written in a kind of dialogue form. 
It's God speaking to his people and and anticipating the questions they have back and and answering them. It's almost like we're listening in to a kind of a family counselling conversation, trying to reconcile a relationship that's seriously broken down. We've got that image in verse 6 of a, a son with his father. As we go through Malachi, we'll see that the people wrongly think they have a right to complain to God. They wrongly think that it's okay for them to give up on serving God because they think he's let them down. When the reality is he's being faithful to them and they're being unfaithful to him. So let's get into point one. This is verse two, and in lots of ways it's foundational to the book. Verse two, this extraordinary statement. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now we'll get to God's response to their question in a moment. I do just want to pause for a moment on those, those two statements. Right from the first moment of the book, we see the steadfast, loving faithfulness of God in his statement, I have loved you. And then we see the bitter, disillusioned faithlessness of his people. How? How have you loved us? Firstly, the faithfulness of God. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. When you stop and think of it, the God we heard about this morning who made the cosmos, not just the moon and the sun, but the stars themselves, this all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal creator God to say to mere grasshoppers on a tiny speck of the earth, I have loved you. Extraordinary. Notice it's not a future tense promise, I will love you. It's not even a statement of his current feelings, I do love you. It's a past statement. It's objective fact. I have loved you. In concrete, historical ways, I have acted in love towards you. And when you consider how rebellious, how faithless, how sinful Israel have been to God by this point of the Bible, it's even more extraordinary Really, from right at the start, when he first gave them the, the law, no other gods but me, and they made a golden calf and started worshipping it, they've been faithless towards him, and yet he has persevered in love towards them. It is like the son who's played truant over and over again. The son who's taken his dad's stuff, maybe borrowed the car, maybe smashed the car, maybe borrowed the phone, dropped it, destroyed the screen, Maybe told they could invite a couple of friends round, but no parties, and ended up inviting everyone on Twitter to a wild rave that trashed the family home. Worse than that, actually, by this point in the Bible, it's like the son who's done all that, and despite gracious, fair warnings from the father, has just refused to change, refused to learn any lessons, refused to talk well of their dad, who's been nothing but kind and generous now claiming, you don't even care about me. It doesn't make any difference whether I'm in your family. So now the two of them sit down for a serious talk about what's going on. And this father, who has been so badly wronged, looks his son in the eye, and what does he start with? Not, here's a list of all the things you've done wrong. No, these opening words... I have loved you. I do love you, and I have loved you, 
faithfully and consistently. I have always acted out of love for you. It'd be an amazing moment, wouldn't it, listening into that conversation. It's not beginning with how badly wrong the son has got it. Right up front, he talks of his love. But actually, as extraordinary as, as the father's opening statement would be, I think the loveless response of the son would be even more extraordinary. How have you loved us? Extraordinary, isn't it? Despite owing his existence and his sustaining to the father, despite all the good gifts, all the gracious patience, all the ongoing love, despite the huge provocation of the son's behavior, nevertheless, those brutal words, how have you loved us? Needless to say that a family relationship where one party has to ask that question, who no longer recognizes the loving actions of another, well, then the relationship is in bad, a bad way. It's like, name one thing you've done for me. It shows how bitter God's people have become by this point and, and how totally out of step of reality they are, how totally out of order the way they're thinking about God, who is who created them and sustained them and is preserving them, has even preserved them through the judgment of exile to get to this point. I can't think, how could someone think like that? I think the reality is, though, sometimes Christians can find ourselves feeling like this or speaking like this to God. How have you loved us, really? How have you loved me, God? I mean, in terms of ministry, the church is shrinking in the UK and the West. And despite real efforts from some of us to pray and to share the good news, we're not yet seeing huge numbers of people turning to Jesus. Some of us have kind of stuck our neck out at work and got stick for it. Some of us have prayed for family members to be saved and not seen fruit. More personally, some of us would love to be married but are not. Some of us are married and are finding it really hard. Some of us would love to have children, but don't. Some of us are struggling with serious illness, ongoing illness. It can be tempting sometimes to think or to say in our hearts, how have you loved us? But actually, there are a hundred answers to that question, aren't there? God has loved us in more ways than we could count or imagine. I mean, the only reason we're sitting here tonight to hear this is because of his love. I mean, it's true physically, like we wouldn't actually be breathing if he wasn't sustaining oxygen in the cosmos. But spiritually, it's because he has drawn us to Jesus. He's set his love on us if we're Christians. And actually, he's demonstrated his love for us on the cross of Jesus Christ as he died the death that we deserve. To even be asking, how have you loved us, shows that bitterness has just taken over and kind of blinded his people here. If we think God is not keeping up his side of the bargain, we really have no idea what we're talking about. And nor did they. Now there's lots of places God could have gone to respond to this challenge. How have you loved us? But I think the place he actually goes next in the conversation is surprising. This is our second point. You see, to demonstrate how he's loved his people... God draws a comparison between them and the people of Edom. 
This is our second point. The point is this. You were chosen for mercy. You were chosen out for mercy. That is, you were chosen and not them. You have received mercy from my hand, but they didn't, they haven't, they won't. You were chosen for mercy. As we dive into verses 2 and 4, I want to acknowledge there are a number of ways in which those verses may sound really puzzling to our ears. First off, there's this language of love and hate. Um, Verse uh, 2, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Now that might not be language we expect to hear in God's mouth. It may well confuse us. We, We think, isn't God a God of love? Isn't it wrong to hate? What's going on here? We'll come back to that. A second puzzle, I think, is just who, hang on, who are we talking about here? Because Jacob and Esau were actually all the way back in Genesis, two brothers in Genesis 25 at the start of the Bible. But Edom and uh, Malachi's uh, nation, Israel, are, are they're kind of neighboring countries, contemporary countries, many, many, many years later. So, so what's going on here? Who are we actually comparing? Well, the answer to that one's simple. Um, Edom are the descendants of Esau. So the family trees of these two nations, Edom and Israel, go back to Jacob and Esau. But still, I think the biggest puzzle of all is how does any of this answer the challenge, how have you loved us? That's the issue, isn't it? In verses 3 and 4, God seems to be pointing out how he has judged Edom And he's judged them in such a permanent way that they will not be able to rebuild or restore themselves. What has that got to do with love? And particularly love for his people. So a few puzzles in there. But stay with me because I think in this case there are answers. And like with lots of surprises in the Bible, as we come to take this on board, I think there is extraordinary truth here to humble us and encourage us. So let's get into it. I've called it, you were chosen for mercy. I'm using the language of chosen because that actually is what this comparison is about. The Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. That sounds strange to our ears. um, But that phrase is about um, choice. It's it's about preference in Hebrew of one thing over another. Um, So it's not so much about animosity. It's about choice. I choose this rather than this. In this case, God is talking about his election, his choice of Jacob and not Esau. That is his decision in Genesis to bless through Jacob's line for his blessing from Abraham to flow through Jacob's family tree. It's not to say that God didn't love Esau as one of his creatures. It's not to say God wasn't generous to Esau as he is to all human beings. But in terms of his loving covenant commitment, his His promise of blessing. From Genesis 25 onwards, it's very clear that God has committed to bless Jacob's family tree rather than Esau and his line. So therefore, they're asking much, much later, Jacob's descendants are asking, how have you loved us? And God says, well, right back from the day of Jacob, I've set my love on you. That is, I've chosen you out of all the nations, the way I chose Jacob out of those two brothers. At which point our hackles may be rising. We may be thinking, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That doesn't sound fair at all. I mean, isn't God supposed to be a God of justice? 
Isn't equality important? I mean, how can he pick, of two twins, how could he pick one brother to set his love and blessing upon? I think at this point, we need to understand something that's taught loud and clear through the Bible, right from the first book of the Bible, which we'll spend next year looking at. So we'll get to do this slowly in Genesis uh, next year. It's all seen all the way through the Bible, though. And that is this truth. Neither of those brothers deserved God's blessing. Neither of them, by rights, had any claim on the God of justice to bless them or reward them. Um, Esau, he didn't even care about God's blessing. He threw it all away just for a bowl of stew. Jacob was a cheat, a deceiver. His name even means it. Neither of them deserved the blessing. They, like Adam and everyone since, they share that same heart that, that rejects God, that, that serves self. Both of them were guilty. Both of them were culpable. Neither of them in line for blessing by rights. But then God, in his free love, chose to bless through Jacob. Or in other words, Jacob was chosen for mercy. And we can't really complain about justice if there is no innocent victim. If we're all guilty by God's standards. We're talking here about a free pardon. And the king of the universe gets to choose where he freely chooses to pardon So Malachi's generation asks, how have you loved us? And God says, well, actually, go right the way back to the start. I set my love on Jacob and not Esau. And then if you roll the history on, um, both Jacob's line and Esau's line, both Israel, who come from Jacob, and Edom, that come from Esau, prove themselves to not be good, prove themselves to not be servants of God or um, gracious and kind to others. That's why uh, Israel had gone into exile. But Edom actually were no better. In fact, they were, if you were here when Jay um, spoke on Obadiah, um, you can go back and listen to it on the website. Obadiah is a book in the Bible that points out that Edom were especially wicked. In that, when God's people went into exile, they didn't help them or show sympathy. They didn't accept refugees, despite the brotherly connection in fact, far from offering support, they piled in on their national brother, their local neighbor. They laughed, they mocked, they sent refugees back to the slaughter, they plundered and they pillaged what goods they could. They kicked them when they were down. And so, verse 3, God, has, um, God will bring judgment on them. I have laid waste, verse 3, his hill country, left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will turn down, tear down, sorry, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Again, how is this judgment a sign of love to his people? Well, two things, I think. Firstly, Edom have, by this point in history, bullied and abused God's people when they were at their most vulnerable. Opportunistically, they'd taken advantage of them. They'd mocked them, attacked them, 
stripped them when they were being conquered. And God will not let them get away with that. They will experience the treatment that they dealt out. But also I think this shows God's love for his people because actually both Israel and Edom have failed God's standards. Both of them have deserved judgment. And yet God has brought his people back. He has given his people in Malachi's day a future in a way he hasn't with, um, with Edom. Do you see the point? You were chosen for mercy. Neither of you deserved it, but I've chosen you for mercy. Now, the Bible's very clear. It's not because God's people have something special about them. Back in Deuteronomy 7, Moses said this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Not because of your, you're impressive or numerous, not something about you, but because of God's choice to love. And again, later, Deuteronomy 9, not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess. The point is, you are no better and yet you have a future. How have you loved us? The people say, you are no better, and yet you have a future. And for Christian believers today, the same really is true of us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. We are no better than others. I hope you know that. I hope we know that as a church family. There's no room for pride. If we are sitting here forgiven as a Christian, if we are sitting here looking forward to a future in all eternity of eternal life, let's not kid ourselves. It's because of anything to do with us, but entirely because God placed his gracious love upon us. I have loved you. How? Do you realize if it weren't for the cross, my judgment would hit you? And so, when God has so fully committed himself to us, so wholeheartedly loved us, even to the extent of sending his own son to pay the debt that we deserve, or then how could our response to him be half-hearted? The kind of lame offering that goes through the motions kind of thing. We may be facing at the moment some hard circumstances. Sometimes individual churches go through some hard times. Sometimes there are disappointing developments when hopes are dashed. But let's never doubt that God is not being faithful to us. Let's never doubt his loving commitment to us. And so let's respond with honor to him similarly. 
And not least, because in the future, it will be very obvious that the God of the Bible was the one to serve. This is our final point, just briefly this evening. Um, Point three, verse five. You will see me act for my people on the global stage. This is our final point this evening. Um, You will see me act for my people on the global stage. One of the things we're going to see as we go through Malachi is that God is not some mini-God, some local tribal God that kind of is only operating in the land um, or the tiny little patch of Fife equivalent that now, um, they now call their own land. No, God is the, the God of the nations, the Lord of hosts, the, the King of the heavenly armies. And so, verse 5, God promises, your own eyes will see this, And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The point is, you will see me act for my people on the global stage. Now, verse 5 is still talking about Edom. It's still talking about that particular historical moment. That in their generation, they would see with their own eyes um, Edom being judged. The point God is saying is that the Edomites ransacking Israel won't get away with it forever. Terrorists blowing up churches or beheading Christians today won't get away with it forever. Now, verse 5 is talking about a very specific historical moment, and it did come true. Um, Edom was overrun by the Nabataeans around this period. Uh, It was never rebuilt. There was no kind of national identity reborn. So they did see in their generation that God is serious about judging wickedness, about defending his people. Actually, as the book goes on, we lift our eyes to a much bigger day. So as we close, just turn to chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, we'll pick it up from verse 17. Um, 3, verse 17. You see, that, that historical day with Eden was just a foretaste of a much bigger day. A much bigger day of distinction when it becomes very clear that serving God was the right choice to make. So verse 17 of chapter 3. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise, with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stool. Do you see what's saying? God encourages his people not just to look back. I have loved you. I am for you. There's proof in history. But actually to look forward that there will be a day of distinction. It may seem pretty blurry at the moment whether serving the God of the Bible really makes any difference positively to your life. And it may look pretty unlikely that ignoring the God of the Bible and doing whatever you want and rejecting his word makes any difference to life. But there is a day coming when all of that is going to change. When the blurriness goes, a day of great distinction. 
what Jesus warned of as the day of the Lord. Now, if that's the first time you've heard about that, you may well have questions or comments. Please feel free afterwards to speak to me or ask uh, more about why I think that's true, actually true, not just a scary story in the Bible. Let's turn, as our time has gone, let's turn back to the issue we began with. Remember, um, the people in Malachi's day are wondering whether it's worth serving God. Is there any point? It's wearisome. It's hard work. And it seems to make no difference. God says, I have loved you. You were chosen for mercy. I've set my love upon you. And there will come a day And Jesus said it could come any day. There will come a day when it is unambiguously clear that it is right to trust the God of the Bible. And so it's my prayer that in this summer, when we're rightly looking forward to some refreshment and some rest and some quieter pace, all of that is good and healthy, and I'm looking forward to it, it's right for us to remember that even in our rest, even in our leisure, we are to be living in service of this amazing God. This God is, who is so committed to us that he loved us with his son going to the cross. And this God who is so committed to justice that there will be a final day when only those who shelter under the Lord Jesus will be safe. However our circumstances are right now, however fruitless or fruitful our service may seem, there is no better or safer place to be. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this book of Malachi. We thank you that you are honest with us, even when it surprises us or challenges us. And we pray you would help us, as we prayed at the start, to have hearts and ears that listen to you. Pray you would help us to reflect on how you have loved us, that but for your grace, but for the Lord Jesus, but for the cross and you setting your love upon us, we too would be facing judgment. Thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that knowing how much you've committed yourself to us in love would lead us to gladly, willingly commit ourselves to you, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.